Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's just kind of think about the theme. Um, the theme is strangers in a strange land. Um, our citizenship is not technically on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. So as we live life on planet earth with all of the pressures, the temptations, all the things that are going on, we are called to be holy. And so God has caused us to be born again. God's given us an inheritance. God has called us to live out our Christianity in a way that is godly. And so now he's going to shift gears, not necessarily shift gears, but he's going to address two issues that are very, very practical. Okay. So issue number one is how do you relate to the governing authorities, no matter what country you live in? And second, how do you keep your witness on the job force, on the workplace? How do you handle your relationship with your employer and things like that? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake, or for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's just stop there for right now because this is the passage of Scripture dealing with how we relate to governing authorities. And then verses 18 through 25 we'll get to about how um, masters and slaves relate to one another. So the first entity that we are to submit ourselves to is every human institution that has been ordained by God. Does your Bible say be subject or submit yourself? Submit. We as Americans don't quite like that word submit. But here's the point. The Christian life, whether we like it or not, is one of submission. Now, we're going to explain that, but there are authority structures in our life that God has instituted. We live in a culture that wants to, and it's part of the American psyche, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a free country, but part and parcel of living in America is, I am the ultimate arbiter of what is right and wrong, and I will fight for my rights, and I have the right to do whatever I want. That's kind of the culture we live in, right? That's not true, is it? Okay. So there's authority structures all through our lives. Parents, bosses, government, God is the ultimate authority. So it's very foreign to us when Peter says, submit yourself to the governing authorities, because in America, we're all about our personal rights, our personal expression, Everything revolves around nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I can do what I want. 
Okay? Now, notice what Peter says there in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise to those who do good. What makes this even more remarkable is that Peter's culture that he's writing here was nothing like our American culture. They're living under the iron fist of the Roman Empire that was persecuting Christians. Okay? At this time in their culture, a lot of places in Asia Minor, you would have to go once a year to the temple of Zeus or Artemis or whatever Greek pagan temple it was. You had to take a pinch of incense publicly. You had to throw it on the pagan altar. And before the city officials, you had to submit your allegiance to Caesar as Lord and God. That would be very difficult for a Christian to do. Now, do you guys remember who is the emperor at the time that Peter's writing this? Nero. Nero was burning Christians on lampposts by dipping them in oil and lighting his gardens. So Peter is telling people who are under the iron fist of Nero to submit to that government. Notice that there are no exceptions. Notice what Peter doesn't say. He does not say, submit to the governing authorities only if it's a democracy. Submit only if you like the president. Submit only if the legislature passes laws that you agree with. Submit unless it's communism. It's submit, point blank, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors. Now, Paul gives us some more teaching on this topic. So Peter and Paul are going to coincide with one another. So Peter here says, subject yourself or submit yourself to every human institution. Let's read Keep your finger in 1 Peter. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. And Paul's going to echo what Peter says here. And it's going to give it a little bit more. Um, Paul's going to give a little bit more detail. But let's read uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Okay? Romans 13, 1 through 7. Everybody there? Okay. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom are taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You're confused. So, ask, ask your question, Nancy. What are you confused about? Mm-hmm. No. You're thinking ahead. You're thinking correctly. You're thinking Christianly. Okay. That should have been the first question that came into your mind. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Here's the conflict that, that, you're, that you're wrestling with. If God has instituted governing authorities, do I have to subject myself and submit myself in every single case without exception? And the answer is no. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Okay. What I want to do here is I just want to lay a case that the Bible is pretty clear that we're supposed to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. And regardless of what government you're in, it has been instituted by God. Now, thankfully, have you ever thought about God's providence in your life? Have you ever stopped and just thought, I was born in America at the time period I was born to the family I was born, and I wasn't born like 1,500 years ago in some jungle in South Asia that never had the gospel? Were you in control of how you were born? God has sovereignly determined you to be born in America with the freedoms we have, so we should never take that for granted. Versus brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that God has sovereignly and providentially had them be born in totalitarian countries like North Korea. Okay, So this, if the scriptures are absolutely true and they transcend time, culture, this is an absolute principle regardless of what country you live in. Because America wasn't around when Peter wrote this, okay? There was not really much... America is like an experiment that's lasted for over 250 years. It's never been around in the history of the world. That's very unique. If you look through the history of the world, haven't most of the nations been either totalitarian, ruled by a king, ruled by an emperor, or they haven't been very much democratic in the history of the world when you look at it? Now... God ordains the governments that are around. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a stream in the, of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God ordains what leaders, rulers, kings, governing authorities do. Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. So, does this mean you don't vote? No, we're going to talk about that here in a moment. There's kind of, you got to be real careful. Since our church is reformed and we believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, we've always got to be careful that we don't take it too far to say, well, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then I might as well not vote. I might as well not witness. I might as well not pray. I might as well not use my spiritual gifts. I might as well not give my tithes and offerings because after all, God's sovereign and He's going to accomplish His will. Now, is God sovereign? Is He going to accomplish His will? Yes. Does God command us to obey? Yes. Both of those truths are side by side in the scripture. So just because God is sovereign and He's going to accomplish His will does not negate our responsibility to do what God's called us to do. And we're going to talk about our responsibility as Christians in, in how we deal with governments. Okay? Okay, so Nancy, let me, ask you, let me answer your question because you asked the great question. I'm confused. 
what if I'm living back during this time and I don't want to go up and pinch incense on the altar and confess my faith to Lord and God? Okay, you guys remember our study of the book of Revelation. Some of those seven churches, they were being persecuted and they were losing their jobs because they weren't doing that. So here's the exception. Okay, there's an exception here where it comes to how we're to submit to the governments. We are called to submit to the government so far as it does not conflict with God as our superior authority. So who is the higher authority, God or the government? God. We are accountable first and foremost to Almighty God. And what God dictates in His Word, we're accountable to obey as the supreme authority. Now, if the dictates of the Scriptures come in conflict with the dictates of the law of the land, we submit to the higher standard, which is God's Word. Okay? So, for example... Does not the Bible tell us in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to make disciples of all nations and obey the Great Commission? Is that a non-negotiable? I mean, that's a non-negotiable. We, we are commanded to share the gospel. What happens if tomorrow the, the, the crazy governor of Colorado passes a law that says you can no longer share Christ with others? What do we say? Sorry, Mr. Governor, but I, I have a higher authority. No matter what law you pass, it's not going to stop me from sharing the gospel because I'm commanded by God to do that regardless of what the government says. Okay. Now, there's an example of this in the Bible. So in the book of Acts, Peter and John and the apostles, so in Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29, okay, there are... Peter and John, the apostles, they're out preaching Jesus. They're preaching the resurrection. Uh, the, the, the authorities do not like what they're doing. They've had him beaten. They've had him flogged. They keep telling him to stop. And so um, this is what it says. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So what happened to the apostles? The authorities said, stop preaching Jesus. And Peter says, uh-uh, I can't. I'm, I can't obey you. I've got to obey God. Now, here's the thing, guys. If you choose to obey the higher authority of Scripture, will there not be a cost? Yes. Now, thankfully, in a free country like America, at least right now, there's not that much pressure on us that there are, like, say, in closed countries where you have to be underground or you could get thrown in prison or your family members can get killed or you can get tortured. So it's easy for us. I mean, we... What? Yeah, I mean, we see it in pockets where um, there's, you know, you get, can get accused of hate speech. You can get accused of different things where the media and others come in and make you sound like, you know, like, for example, if I were to stand up and I'm standing up right now and it's broadcasting to whoever watches this and says, gay marriage is against biblical standards and sinful some people might consider me hateful and say, you're not allowed to say that. We're going to stop you from saying that. And I would say, 
the authority that I have to say that is not my authority. It comes from what God says in His Word. And this is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, and it's what the Scripture says. Okay? So, in our text, what Peter does here is he gives three practical ways that we're to shine as lights as strangers in a strange land in relation to our government, regardless of whether we like it or not. Okay? So what are these practical ways? So here's the first. First of all, he tells us that it's God's will that we should do good. Okay, so let's go back to 1 Peter. Get back out of Romans. Go back to 1 Peter. It is God's will. So let's pick up in verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, it is God's will. It's very rarely in the Bible does it come point blank and says it's God's will. This is one of those times where, do I know what God's will is? Well, yeah, it tells you right here. It is God's will that you do good. Now, why? Peter gives a reason there. He says our doing good should silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's Peter's point. Regardless of how hostile our government becomes, we should be known as Christians for doing good. Now, it's going to get kind of wonky here because what we consider good, the culture may consider evil. So, for example, is fighting for the right of unborn babies to survive in the womb and end abortion a good? Yes. Does our culture at large in some pockets perceive that as good? No. So we do what the Bible defines as good regardless of what the culture defines as good. Here's the point I think sometimes. I think many times we as Christians are more notorious for what we're against than what we're for. Now, there's some things we need to be against. But there are some things that we should be for in doing good. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments, what that looks like. So the first thing Peter says is we got to do good. And by doing good, we'll silence... The ignorance of foolish people. Okay, uh, Titus 3, 1 through 2, another passage here. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay, here's where I think as Christians we need to do a better job. And let's just be real honest. Most non Christians look at us and say, you hate gay people, or you're hateful, or you're this or that. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm not hateful. I know I'm not hateful just because I disagree with what they're doing. But I think that as Christians, we need to do a better job of building relationships with people that have differences. When was the last time you sat down with somebody that had a totally different worldview than you and you respected them and you 
ate lunch with them or you had coffee with them or you had a civil conversation with them. So I go to the gym every day. And there is a young man there that's definitely in an alternative lifestyle. Um, I used to talk with him when he worked at River City. When I'd go in there, um, I'd, I'd get a lot of to-go orders sometimes for a family, and, he'd, and I'd talk with him and build a relationship with him. And one year I invited him to Easter. And he came to Easter Sunday at Emmanuel with his boyfriend or husband or whatever it is. Okay. Ever since then, I see him almost every day at the gym. And I talk with him, and I converse with him, and I'm kind to him. And do I disapprove of what he's doing? Yeah. Does he know I'm a pastor who disapproves? Of what he, but I want him to know that I care about him as a person. And so I think sometimes we as Christians, we kind of get this bad rap of that we're hateful against everybody. Now, we know that we're not. But by the things that come out of our mouth and our unwillingness to sit down and, and do good and listen to others, what does what is Paul say there in Titus? Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Sometimes, regardless of what the person is doing, not to approve of their behavior, you've got to show courtesy and you've got to show love and you've got to, to be um, someone that's willing to build some bridges. All right, secondly, Peter tells us not to abuse our freedoms with a license to engage in sin. Okay, so look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay, this could be America's verse. You live in a country that has a lot of freedoms. And how often do we abuse that? So what Paul here is saying is, you are not bound by sin. You're free in Christ. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer under condemnation. You have freedom in Christ, but don't you dare ever use that as an excuse to go indulge in sin. So what's the old adage? I like sinning. God likes forgiving. That's a great relationship. Let's just keep that up. Paul says no, and Peter says no. You, you can't use your freedom as a cover-up for engaging in evil. So we're never to make the excuse that, oh, just because I'm forgiven, once saved, always saved, I'm going to heaven, I can do whatever I want. That's not, a, that's not really a, a viable way to live according to the Scriptures. And then thirdly, he says, this may sound a little weird, we are to live as servants of God. You may have a footnote in your Bible. Does some of you say bondservant or slave at the end of verse um, 16? The ESV says servants of God, but there's a footnote in my ESV that says bondservants. It's the Greek word doulos, which means slave, a bondservant. Now, back in that culture, you know, there was slaves, so here's the thing. If we're to be a slave to God or a bondservant to God, here's the deal. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. At first glance, slavery sounds confining and negative and abusive. And in that culture, it often was. 
But the paradox is that we're slaves to God. It's not abusive. It's not negative. It's actually freeing and joyous to be bound to God as, as servants. Now, in verse 17, Peter is going to give four quick, short, rapid-fire um, commands that further motivate us to shine as lights in the world. Okay? So let's look at verse 17. Honor everyone. Why? Why are we to show honor to everyone? Well, it's a commandment right here, but yeah, but why? Okay, but why? Okay, but you're all right. But why are we to honor everyone? Okay. Is every single person created in the image of God and therefore has inherent dignity? So we're to honor everyone because they're a person created in the image of God and they deserve the respect as a human being. Okay. Number two makes it a little bit more narrow. Love the brotherhood. Okay, who's, okay so honor everyone. Show respect and kindness to everyone. But there's a, specific there's a specific love we have for other believers that's a little bit deeper than the love we have you know, just generally out there. Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have a great big fish on the back of your car, right? Is that what he says? <laughs> no, if you have love for one another. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Okay, what's the third thing he says? Fear God, let's skip this and come back to it, okay? And then number four is interesting. What does he say there? Honor who? The king or the emperor? Again, who is the emperor? Nero. Now, okay, this should make you perk up and say, now wait a minute. Honor the emperor that's lighting Christians and putting him in the gladiator ring to be eaten by wild animals, honor that guy? Here's where I think we need a little bit of Christian wisdom. We need to make a distinction between honoring the office and honoring the person. We may not agree with our president's politics, or we may not like his personality, but we're still called to honor the office of president and realize that God has ordained our nation to have this type of leadership. Okay. What do you mean by that, Dennis? Respect for the office. Whoever, whoever it is. Okay. God, if God has instituted that office as a governing authority, He's put that person in place. Whatever you think about President Trump or our next president, or our former president, or your governor, or whoever, whatever you think about that, that person is in that office that's a human institution that God has ordained, and by virtue of that, we're to honor the office. Now, that doesn't mean we have to like everything they do. doesn't mean we have to vote for them. doesn't mean we can't petition their removal. Here's the thing, guys. We are so conditioned as Americans to think about, we can just vote the guy out, or we can just 
Back then, they couldn't vote the guy out. These are some hard things to think about. Okay. Now, here's the primary teaching in this whole thing. Let's root this command in the gospel. Look at verse 13. Go back and look at verse 13. What does Peter say? Be subject, subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. We are doing this ultimately because our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord, the fear of the Lord. So here's the question. Who do we serve first and foremost? Do we serve the United States of America, state of Colorado, city of Sterling, Logan County? Our ultimate allegiance that we pledge to is Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now here's the question that you may have been asking. Okay, I'm not in Peter's culture where you know, they didn't have really any rights to do whatever they wanted to. I live in America where I have rights and I have input into the political process. So here's the big question. Should Christians exert any influence in politics? Notice how I've asked the question carefully. I didn't say should the church exert influence. What did I say? Should Christians. Okay. Churches don't vote. Christians vote. Churches can't endorse a certain political candidate, but you as an individual can and you should. So to what extent should you as a Christian citizen, let's make it contextual to America, get involved in politics? Okay. Now, Wayne Grudem has written a book about government and Christianity and so he's given some views that are out there that have been kind of historically the, the way Christians have kind of approached this. And so um, let me just kind of give you his list about the question, how should Christians get involved in politics? Okay, so here's, here's number one, view number one. Government should compel or force religion. Okay. That's a wrong view, right? <laughs> That's, that's the way, um, like Muslim nations, like in Saudi Arabia, they have Sharia law, where everyone is forced to follow Islam. This is the whole idea that in a free society, the government should mandate down to you what you should believe. We do not believe that, but that's, what, that's one view out there is that the government should do that. Now, I want you to listen to the words of Thomas Jefferson in 1779 in his Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom. He wrote this, Be it therefore acted by the General Assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened to suffer on account of his religious opinion or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and maintain their opinions in matters of religion. That is a very strong statement that needs to be heard today. What's he saying there? You, nobody should be molested or burdened to suffer on account of his religious belief or opinion. You should be able to have whatever religious opinion or belief you want without fear of the government retaliating against you. And also you should be free to profess 
and maintain. Now, profess and maintain. Here's what people are saying today. It's okay, Christian, if you have that private view, but you can't practice it publicly or espouse it publicly. You see what I'm saying? You can practice your Christianity in the privacy of your home, but you can't bring it into the public square. Now, let's go to the biblical response to this. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 22. And let's see what Jesus says. Because Jesus had something to say about it. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Everybody there? All right. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Jesus gives a very clear teaching here. There are things such as taxes that are under the government and the church should not get involved in collecting taxes or forcing people to do stuff. There's some things that the government does, like collecting taxes, passing laws, doing things like that. That's the government's responsibility. On the flip side, there are things related to the church that only the church should be involved in that the government has no part in. So the government should not come in and tell us what to believe or what not to believe. The government should not hinder your ability to express your freedom of religion. The government should not molest, uh, provoke, entangle, prevent the free exercise of your right to express and maintain and publicly practice your religion. According to our Constitution, and that's the only law we have right now, until it changes, and the First Amendment, and the freedom of exercise clause and all that stuff. You and I have the constitutional, and even above that, it's just God's given us, it's a God-given right that we have the ability to not only say what we believe, but live what we believe and practice what we believe and actually say that what somebody else is doing is wrong according to our beliefs without fear of being retaliated against. Now, here's the problem in our culture today. Those freedoms are going quickly, quickly, quickly away. Quickly away. And so the first view here is that, well, the government should, should compel the, what, what, what the, the people are to believe. Now, it goes both ways, guys. 
Back in 413 AD, when Constantine, the Roman Empire, with his Edict of Milan, made Christianity legal in Europe, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So Christianity was mandated down. You will be Christian. Okay? Which led to a thousand years of a state church in Europe where people were born and christened as Christians, but they had no saving faith. They were Christian by virtue of being born in Europe under a state church. So nowhere in the scriptures do we see Jesus or the apostles trying to use the government as a way to force people to believe the gospel. Okay? So the government should not force you to practice a religion or hamper your freedom from that. Okay? And this kind of goes to view number two. View number two, government should exclude religion. Okay? The other view is government should not force you to have a certain religion. The other view is that, like this is the view of the secular atheists who want no religion at all practiced in the public square. This will be like people like ACLU and Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. They don't want prayers at city council meetings. They don't want the Ten Commandments up in public buildings. Um, if you're giving a graduation speech, you shouldn't be able to mention God. Um, I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago in Las Vegas, there was a high school valedictorian. She was told she had to remove references to Jesus in her speech. And she said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep those in her speech. Um, she had the microphone shut off in the middle of her speech by the principal. Okay. So, what does it say in the First Amendment? And until, like I said, until things change, we're still under the Constitution, at least right now. Okay, so I'm making it applicable to us as Americans. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. The government should not prohibit the free exercise of your religion. Now, what people are saying today is, well, you can exercise that religion in the privacy of your own church and home, but you can't bring it out in the public square. That that's not what the original framers meant. There's no qualifications based upon that. So here's the bottom line. The morals and ethics of Christianity have a great place in our nation to help curb anarchy, to keep our culture civil and lawful. If there's no voice for God's standards in the public square, then our nation could devolve into complete moral disintegration. Okay? All right. View number three is a, is a very minor view, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this is the view that um, all government's demonic and evil. <laughs> this view may be new to you, but there are a small minority of evangelical Christians who hold this idea that government's under the control of Satan, those who hold this view are often pacifists, which means they don't believe in serving in the military. They don't believe we should have any wars. They believe in um, nuclear, you know, non-proliferation of nuclear arms. It's like um, some Quakers and other type of sects like that that are more pacifists. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that. You, you probably have, okay? 
I'd be interested to find out about it. Here in Sterling? Oh, okay. Okay, here's number four. This is, um, this is actually kind of popular. Just do evangelism, but don't ever get involved in politics. Okay? Now, let's, let's balance this. Should we do evangelism? Yes. What does Paul say about, about the gospel? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the, to the Greeks. Okay. I understand what people say when they hold to this view. Their view is we should never, ever, ever get involved in politics. Christians should never vote their conscience. Christians shouldn't run for office. If we're going to change America, it's only and strictly and solely going to come through the gospel. Now, do I believe that change is only going to come through the gospel? Yes, true, lasting heart change is only going to come through the gospel. But is it, are, they, are those two mutually exclusive? Can you not get involved in politics at the same time as sharing the gospel? So what they're saying is only share the gospel, don't get involved in politics. Okay? We were created for good works. Ephesians 2 we are, uh, says we were Christ's workmanship, created for good works which God preferred beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so let's be, let's be clear here. You guys know this. We're saved by grace. I keep getting ahead of my slides here. It's going faster than I'm thinking. Okay. Let's be very clear. Is that where we are? Let's be very clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But once we're saved, we're called as Christians to be zealous for good works. Here is a question for you. Is getting involved in the political process as a Christian citizen a good work? I would say yes, it is. Does it bring glory to God for you as an individual Christian to vote and to participate in a political process in a way that your voice can be heard in a democratic society? Yes. Now, I want to be balanced here. The only way America will fully and radically be transformed is through God pouring out a revival and spiritual awakening on our land, a movement of God through the gospel, where hearts are changed through Christ. But that does not mean that at the same time, we as Christians can't influence the political process to make our culture better for the good of our children. You understand what I'm saying? So I want you to think about Christians throughout the years, throughout the culture, throughout history, who've influenced politics for the better good of society. Okay? Historian Alvin Schmidt has argued that in the early days of the Roman Empire, Christianity was responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, abortion, and the gruesome gladiator battles in the arena. Are those societal goods that came about through Christians getting involved? Okay. You guys maybe remember William Wilberforce in England. He was a strong Christian. He led the effort through Parliament and slavery in England. Think about the vocal opponents to slavery in our own country 
who were committed Christians. So I want you to think about something here. If Christians throughout history adopted the view that we only do evangelism and we don't get involved in the political process, things may not have changed in society. There may still be brutality, abortion, slavery, and other atrocities would continue to go unchecked if Christians had not stepped in and let their voice be heard. So, yes, we want to see people get saved by the power of the gospel. That's the only way they're going to be transformed. But that doesn't mean at the same time we as Christians can't do good works in the culture to try to influence the political process for the good of society and ending some societal ills to make our nation a better place to live that does reflect God's morals and God's values. Does that make sense? Okay, here's another view. This view says, just do politics but not evangelism. Okay? This is the view that only politics will change the laws and society, and, and it'll usher in a better place for all of us. And this can be the liberal or conservative side. It's basically the attitude of, yeah, we'll give lip service to the gospel, and yeah, we really should share Jesus, and, and yeah, there needs to be revival and spiritual awakening, and yeah, we understand that, but really, if there's any change that's going to happen, we've got to elect the right officials. We've got to pass the right laws. Let me ask you a question. Just if you elect the right officials or pass the right laws, does that guarantee that anything's going to change? What's the only thing that's going to change people from the inside out? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And once they're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and they have new identities in Christ and their new creations in Christ, then they will be followers of Christ. And as you get more and more followers of Christ, then society will begin to change because they've been changed by the gospel. You know, you don't see this as much today, but kind of back in the heyday of the moral majority, like in the early 80s, it was all, you know, if we just got the right elected officials, if we just got the right Supreme Court justice, and yes, we need to have those things, but I think sometimes Christians put all their eggs in the political basket, and they don't put it in the gospel basket. What are some biblical examples or situations where believers, both in the Old and New Testament, influence government? So if we're saying, yes, you as an individual Christian believer should influence the political process, do we have any biblical evidence for those that did that? And I would say, yes, we do. A big one, if you go back and read the book of Daniel, Daniel was um, really high in charge, put in charge by King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was out oppressing his people. And Daniel comes to him, in Daniel 4.27, he approaches the king and says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is a godly man who had been placed at a high political office that went into Nebuchadnezzar and confronted the king and said, Listen, don't continue doing these evil practices that you're doing but start showing compassion to the oppressed in your land, and God may lengthen the prosperity of your reign if you do the right thing. Okay, what about Jeremiah? Jeremiah tells us to do something very specific. Okay, Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of the Babylonian exile. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, 
ransacks Jerusalem, tears down the wall, destroys the temple, carts off Israelites and waves 900 miles away to Babylon. And for 70 years, where is Israel? They're in Babylon. Okay. They're not in Jerusalem, they're in Babylon. And Jeremiah tells them to do something interesting while they're in Babylon. Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in the welfare, for in its, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay. So let's just ask you a question. Should we seek the welfare of our city? Yes. Because if our city is doing things that are good, it will be a better place to live. So, should we as Christians be concerned about crime, drugs, poverty, spousal abuse, the poor, human trafficking, which are here alive and well in this small town, homelessness, illiteracy, all the things that... Do we just sit back as Christians and say, well, that's the government's job to take care of? Or do we say, you know what, as Christians, we can step in and we can seek the welfare of our city by doing good works that improve the quality of life for our city so that everybody's quality of life is improved so that we have a better place to live. Does that make sense? Okay, Joseph. Joseph was the second highest in the court of Pharaoh, and he had great influence on the decision-making in Pharaoh's court back in Genesis 41 through 45. What about Moses? <laughs> Moses got pretty political, didn't he? He went right to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He got involved in the political process. He went directly to the king. Nehemiah, he was cupbearer to the king. He had a political office. Esther became queen, had significant influence on decision-making in Persia. John the Baptist was put in prison because he got in the face of King Herod and accused him of adultery. Luke, Luke 3, 18 through 20. John the Baptist was, was, not, was not shy on confronting political leaders. Luke 3, 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is John the Baptist. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all, then locked up John in prison. John the Baptist went to Herod and said, what you're doing is wrong, you're an adulterer. He wasn't afraid to go to the highest person in the land and say, you're living in sin. And he paid the price for it. He eventually got beheaded. Okay, what about Paul? This is very interesting. When we think about Paul, what do we think about? Missionary journeys, missionary journeys, church planning, evangelism, training, discipleship. But do you realize that towards the end of Acts, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship to go before the governing authorities to appeal his case because of all the imprisonments that he had. So in Acts 24, 24 through 25, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control of the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get the opportunity, I will summon you. 
We don't know what actually Paul talked about to the, to the leader there, but I'm sure he boldly presented the gospel. Okay. So this section in 1 Peter that we've just looked at talks about how we as Christians relate to the governing authorities, how we're salt and light, how we're to interact in this world in submission to the institutions that God's ordained. Questions before we move on on this topic? It took a lot of years for him to do that. And guys, sometimes when we see these commands in the scriptures, like remember what I talked about. Sometimes in Paul's gospel, Paul's writings, he'll start with the gospel indicatives, like in the first half, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and then he moves to therefore now live it out. Peter kind of weaves the indicatives and the imperatives back and forth. And so sometimes when we come to these passages where he's giving commands for us to live as salt and light and be subject. We've got to root everything back in the gospel uh, because we really can't live these commands out unless we understand who we are in Christ. So if you remember from the very beginning, what did, Paul, or what did Peter say? You've been born again and not with perishable seed, but the imperishable through the gospel. Uh, you've got this inheritance. And so the only way, and so, so Peter, you kind of have to always remember what Peter's saying. So when, he, when we come to these sections where Peter's kind of like, Honor the emperor. These things sound really hard to do. Well, yeah, they're hard to do, but through who we are in Christ, being born again, being chosen, predestined, effectually called, all the things that God has done for us, in that identity of who we are, we have the power to obey these commands. So I don't want you... Sometimes... When you go through teachings like this, you know, a pastor can beat you down by saying, okay, just submit to the governing authorities. Do this. Okay, go, go home, be well, be fed. Go, go do what you're supposed to do. And I'm sure you'd walk away being like, well, I, that's kind of, that, that's fun. And like I say a lot, there's two ways you can respond to this. You can walk away and go, I can do that. I can do that. Give me my list of things to do and I'll do it. And you can walk out of here prideful saying, I, I, can, I got my list. Pastor Sean's told me what to do. Let me go do it. Some of you will walk out of here saying, don't even give me a list because I feel defeated before I even walk out the door because I feel so inadequate to do that. Okay. So if we don't root this in the gospel, that God through Christ and the gospel gives us the power to obey these commands out of who we are in Him, you will leave frustrated or you will leave prideful. Okay? Because he's going to go into another set of commands here about subjects, like servants be subject to your master. So he's going to talk about how do you deal with employee-employee relationships and things like that. And so what I want to show you guys as we go into this is that Peter wraps it back around by giving us the gospel. Okay, so he's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to bring this thing back around to Christ and the gospel and how the gospel fuels and motivates our ability to do this, Okay. So I just want to remind you with Peter, he kind of weaves the gospel indicatives and the moral imperatives in and out of his writings. Paul, it's a little bit more easy. Like first half of Paul's letter, indicatives. Second half of Paul's letter, imperatives. You kind of see that. Peter weaves them in and out. So let, let's go into verse, verse 18. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, if for it you endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hopefully there towards the end you see how the gospel comes in, and we'll talk about that. So this is the second kind of big ticket issue we're looking at tonight. First, Paul or Peter says, Submit yourself to the governing authorities. Now he's saying to submit ourselves to the, the, the authority over us, usually in our job place. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Okay. I don't want to go into a whole discussion on slavery and that culture. Um, we're kind of comparing apples to oranges in the sense that we, we aren't in that culture, the, the original culture in Asia Minor. So we're just going to kind of talk about the principle today of jobs and employment. So, so here's the question you got to ask, because none of you are slaves, I don't think. Maybe you feel like that when you go to work. Um, how do you continue to work under a boss or a supervisor who's manipulative, unfair, cold, or unjust? Anybody ever had a boss like that? I'll nod your head. How do you maintain your Christian witness in this? Sometimes we will suffer on the job just because it's part and parcel of, of the Christian life. Um, Peter uses the word endure, endure a lot. So there's going to be times when you're going to suffer unjustly at your job, at the workplace. But we need to entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God because when we suffer unjustly, and there will be times when we do, we're not to get even, we're not to take vengeance, we're to humbly and patiently live with the truth that God is sovereign. He's working out all things for our good. He's providentially placed you in that job. He's meticulously working out His divine plan in your life through that job. Now, you may at times wonder why you're working where you're working and what you're going through and why do I have to deal with the things on the workplace. And sometimes God doesn't reveal to us what He's secretly doing in the counsel of His will. We just know in the moment we're suffering. But we do know what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, just for the sake of time, I want us to look at verse 21. Because this, this may shock you. You guys tell me, what, is, what does verse 21 say in your Bible? For 
To this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you example that you might follow in his steps. Do you understand what he's saying there? To this you've been called. What have you been called to? You've been called to suffer. You've been called to suffer. Now that's a word that Americans don't like to hear, that it may be God's sovereign plan for you to, to suffer. How do you handle that? 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, there's two things that we need to be very careful with here. There's a popular movement among evangelicals that says, let's just look to Jesus as our example. Remember the old bracelets? What would Jesus do? That doesn't give you a lot of hope, does it? Because <laughs> you're not the incarnate Son of God who lived a perfect life. What would Jesus do? So there's this whole thing, well, let's just model what Jesus did. Is Jesus our example? Yes, but He's a whole lot more. He's our Savior. Okay, so if we just treat Jesus as an example, because Paul, Peter says here, and we've got to read it all the way through, because I want to show you what Peter says here. He says in verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in His steps. Okay. Jesus suffered as an example for us to follow in His steps. What does that mean and what does that, do, what does that not mean? Is Jesus our example of, of suffering? Okay, how did Jesus suffer? He suffered on the cross. Okay, are we called to suffer on the cross? Are we called to atone for our own sins? Can you, can you as a finite human be the incarnate Son of God, come and live a perfect life in thought, word, and deed, and give yourself up on the cross perfectly for the will of God? Can you follow that example? Nobody can follow that example. Okay, so what in the world is he talking about here when it says we're to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Does that mean that we're supposed to start? I mean, what does it mean? So what I want to tell you here is that what Peter does is he's going to root this entire commandment back in the gospel, especially taking us back to the book of Isaiah 53. And there's a specific way in which we are to follow the example of Christ. But I want you to look at the words there, okay? Now, verse 22, He committed no sin. Does that apply to you? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, does that verse apply to you and me? No. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay. Now, these are quotes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 9. What does it say there? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, Jesus alone lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed, never opened his mouth. He was a sheep led to the shears. He's the sinless, perfect son of God. We can't follow that example on our, even on our best days, okay? Isaiah 53, 7 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Okay, but look at the end of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What is it? What did Jesus do on the cross? He continued entrusting himself. The word there that Peter uses for Jesus entrusting himself to the Father is that he, he was handing over his life, his circumstances. He was giving everything over to a sovereign God. He kept entrusting himself to the Father while on the cross undergoing all of that. Now, we can't quite understand all of this, okay? I, I, I'm not going to be the first to even begin to understand all that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced on the cross between Him and the Father. That's something that we'll never fully understand. We just worship Jesus for what He endured. But don't ask me to, to explain all of what, what happened on the cross when Christ suffered in our place. But one of the last words that Jesus said, Luke 23, 46, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And He breathed His last. Okay, so... What does it mean to entrust yourself to the Father? To entrust yourself to the Father. So let me give you guys um, some definitions here. And this comes from the Puritans and the Reformers and some of the, um, the, older, the older people that we kind of listen to. And, and, and they made a distinction between two types of faith. So like Calvin and some of the reformers, they, they called it a reflexive faith and a direct faith. A reflexive faith looks inward to yourself for evidences of gospel growth to make sure you're accepted before God. So keep looking inside yourself. It's like a reflective faith. I, I need to make sure that I'm doing enough to keep myself in God's good graces. I want to keep looking in, keep looking in, keep looking in and make sure that I'm, I'm keeping up. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the type of faith we as Christians have? Okay. Versus a direct faith that the Reformers would say is you don't look inside yourself for evidences of growth. You look directly outside yourself at Jesus and His finished work and you trust yourself to Christ. So my question for you, do you want to keep looking at yourself or do you want to look at Jesus? What happens when you keep looking at yourself? Do you find a lot of hope there? You don't get the answers you're looking for. So let's look at the gospel here, guys. Verse 24 may be the most important verse in 1 Peter because it's the gospel in a nutshell. He's going to bring everything here into what Christ did for us on the cross and how we have a direct faith that looks outside of ourselves directly to Jesus and trusts in Jesus. Okay, so here we go. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds you've been healed. Okay, this is directly from Isaiah. These, again, this is all directly from Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We've seen Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we 
are healed. Okay. What word sticks out to you in that passage of Scripture? He himself, what does your Bible say? Bore. Our born or born. Yeah, it's just the past tense of bore. Okay. What that word means in the original language is that the massive weight of our sin Jesus carried. And He died in our place by taking the justice that we deserved. Now, we've talked a lot about propitiation over the years. That Jesus bore the full justice of God against our sin in His body. Paul would say it like this in Galatians 3.13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Interesting language that Paul uses there. Notice it doesn't say Christ was cursed for us, which wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but it says Christ became a curse. So I want you to think about it this way. When Jesus was hanging there on the cross, God was reckoning or crediting or imputing all of our sins to Jesus. He was bearing that punishment in His body that was due us because of our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. The massive weight of that sin, the massive weight of that justice and punishment coming on Jesus. And, and, and the staggering thing is that Jesus never once experienced sin. Think about that for me. He never once experienced sin in thought, word, and deed. And the very first time He experienced sin was not His own, but it was ours. And not just experienced our sin, but was treated as if He had sinned, even though He didn't, with our sins being imputed to Him, so that God took the punishment out on Jesus that we deserve, so He bore that in His body on the cross. That's why you know, Matthew says it this way in Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sekbakthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's interesting what Peter says here about Christ's death on the cross. Because His death does produce something. Notice what He says there. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might, what? Die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay. What did the cross accomplish in your life? There's some negative and there's some positives there, right? Okay, so let's look at the negative there. We might die to sin. Okay, so what does Jesus' death on the cross do? It cancels both the penalty and the power of sin. The penalty and the power. Okay, so... When Jesus died on the cross, it says there, 
You, die, you and I died to sin. We died to the condemnation of that sin. We died to the penalty of that sin. We died to the power of that sin. So we can no longer be held accountable for our sins. Jesus took those sins. We're no longer under the power of that sin. Uh, the power, the penalty, you died to sin as an enslaving force in your life through Christ's death on the cross. Okay? But in addition... He says, you might live to righteousness. Okay, now we need to be careful here because is Peter talking about living righteously? Or is he talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes through justification by faith alone? Which will, in fact, produce sanctification See, here's the thing, guys, in this double... So the, the reformers of old and like Martin Luther and Calvin and others, they called it a double, a double imputation or a, or a double transaction. Okay, so I've drawn this on the board before. So you want me to draw it again? Okay, so some of you are like, no, don't draw it. So I'll draw it. Okay, so all right. So pretend like, okay, this is a ledger. Okay, so this is a, this is a bank account, like banking terms here, okay? And court courtroom terms. So we got courtroom analogy, we got banking analogy. Okay, so here's your life right here. This is you. And when God, as the judge of the universe, looks down upon your life without Christ, what does God see? He sees a negative gazillion balance of sin in your account. Okay, I made up a word gazillion, but let's just say you have a negative balance of sin in your account. Can you do anything to get that account out? Can't. Okay. So when God looks down upon your life because you have the sin debt, God can make a pronouncement. God can say, you're guilty. You're condemned. You're in debt. Now, you can't do anything to get yourself out of that. Okay. So, when, so on the other side of the ledger, you've got Jesus. Okay. So by faith, when you trust in Christ for salvation, by faith, when you believe in Jesus, there's this wonderful transaction that happens. Every single one of your sins, that gazillion sins, they're taken out of your account and they're, they're credited or they're imputed or they're reckoned to Jesus and Jesus bears all of your sins. Okay. Now, banking terms... If all of your negative sin debt goes out of your account, what does that leave you at? Zero. Okay. Well, that's good. You're, you're no longer in debt. You have zero. But does anybody want to have a zero balance? You're like, yeah, I want to be out of debt, but I want to be more than zero. All right. So here's the thing. Can you produce a positive balance in your account? Can you produce a positive balance in your account? You can't produce anything to bring that positive balance into your account. No matter good deeds, no matter what you do, you can't bring yourself up to that positive. Okay, so it goes the other way. So there's, it goes back this way. So when you believe in Jesus, your sins are credited to Christ. But here's the thing. When you also believe His perfect life, His perfect record, thought, word, and deed, everything that Jesus did to perfectly obey the Father, that record gets credited to your account. It's transferred into your account. Now, did you earn that? Did you produce that? No, Jesus gives that to you as a free gift. So now you no longer have a zero balance. You in your account have the record of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. 
So God now, when he looks down upon you, does he pronounce you guilty anymore? He pronounces you not guilty. And he relates to you as a father, not a judge. And this one-time transaction by faith is what we call justification, where our sins are credited to Christ, His righteousness is credited to us, one time as we trust in Jesus, and based upon what Christ has done, God can declare us legally righteous, not guilty, forever, once and for all, before the throne of God in a permanent position of being accepted by the Father, all on account of what Christ did. His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Can you earn that? So let me ask you another question. Even the faith that you had to believe in Jesus, did you produce that faith or did God give that faith? You guys know, even the faith you had to believe was a gift of God that He gave to you. So when, Paul, when Peter here says that Jesus died, propitiated the wrath of God, bore our sins, became a curse, died in our place on the tree, we died to sin. The power, the penalty, the condemnation of sin was canceled by Jesus, and we live to righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us once and for all as a gift so that we forever stand accepted before God in this permanent position of always being accepted by the Father. So does your acceptance by the Father fluctuate based upon how well you're performing? One day I'm doing really good. Man, I had my quiet time today. I didn't kick the dog on the way out and cuss at him. My wife and I didn't get in a fight. I didn't speed in traffic. I went to the soup kitchen. I worked at vacation Bible school. I went to my, you know, I had my quiet time. I, I went to my, my Bible study small group and, and I got home and I prayed and, and I didn't watch any rated R movies and, and I went to bed and God must really love me today. The next day, I forget to have my quiet time. I cussed at my wife. I sped in traffic. I caught that rated R movie. I didn't go to my Bible and say, God must love me less. Let me ask you a question. Does God love you more on the days you're doing better and does He love you less on the days you're doing, you're doing bad? No, God loves you permanently based upon Christ. Now, is that an excuse for you to go and do those things? No, but your identity, your assurance is in who God has called you to be, who God has, has, has declared you to be in justification. Now, Peter calls a sheep here. Verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned. And there's two titles for Jesus here, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and the overseer. So you guys tell me, what imagery does a shepherd come to mind? You think about Jesus as a shepherd over your souls. What does a shepherd do? Watches, guides, leads, cares for. So, So let me ask you again. Who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Jesus. Okay. He's our chief shepherd. He cares for us. He loves us. He leads us. Okay. Now, what is the other title there for him? For him? He's the overseer. The overseer. What's an overseer? The overseer is like, it's the same word for, it's episkopos, an overseer. It's almost the same word for like a pastor. 
an overseer, an elder. So Jesus, He shepherds us, He leads us, He watches over us, He guides us, He protects us. He is not only our shepherd, He's also our King who has sovereign authority. So, let's root these commands that we've talked about tonight in the gospel. How can you submit to the governing authorities? I think I've gone off script, guys, so I don't even know where we're at here. Um, uh, let's, let's go. So let's bring these two commands. Let me find out where we're at here. Sorry, I got off track because I was kind of... You guys see? I don't know what page it's on. So let's bring this back to the two commands we've been exploring. Submitting to the government and submitting to our employers. The only way we can do this is because Christ and His cross has freed us to live to righteousness. We're called to suffer because Christ suffered. He's our sovereign Savior, and this is a sober calling. But in the end, remember, a curious pagan world is watching your life to see if there's a difference. May they be won over to the gospel by how you respond to adversity. May they see your good deeds and glorify God. May they see Christ in you. All those who have pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ and live for His kingdom as strangers in a strange land are destined for suffering, persecution, and difficulties. But the amazing promise is that we have an inheritance waiting for us. Let's rest secure in the sovereign hands of our Savior and be prepared this week to live as strangers in a strange land to the glory of God the Father. Questions, comments, or snide remarks in the last five minutes that we have? I didn't have time to go into the fact that um, I think our government's going to get a lot harder to submit to. It's going to get harder for us as Christians to submit to our government. And the government's going to make it harder for us to practice our freedoms as Christians. So we just need to be prepared. We're not in Kansas anymore. It's not your father's Oldsmobile anymore. We're strangers in a strange land and it's going to get it's going to get difficult. But keep entrusting yourself to the one who is faithful. Entrust yourself to the Lord. All right. You guys ready to call it quits? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had tonight, Lord. And we do want to thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sins. You bore your sins in, in your body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're so thankful, Jesus, for that. So thankful for the righteousness you give us, that sin has been canceled as a power and penalty in our life. And Lord, give us the power through the gospel, power through the Holy Spirit to be able to submit to the government. Lord, it's very difficult, but give us the, the strength to be able to do that and the wisdom to know how. And Lord, um, on the job, at the workplace, when we deal with difficult employees, employers, bosses, co-workers, how do we maintain um, our witness when we suffer there, Lord? Just give us strength to do that. Uh, let us do it all in your power that you give us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.